The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. years. That is exactly how long ago Charles Manson convinced his followers to to go on a, on a murder spree. And, it, and it, it was shocking. It was disturbing. And, and we call him a serial killer, but he never actually killed anyone. It was, it was all about the power of suggestion. Jeff Semple, a senior correspondent with Global National News, is here to chat with us about that. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Morgan. Great to be with you. Great to have you with us. Now, do we have any insight 50 years later on how Charles Manson managed to convince his followers to kill? Yeah, I mean, it's incredible to think that, as you say, five decades later, that question is still, you know, relatively unanswered and remains a bit of a mystery. I mean, how is it that Charles Manson, um, you know, this hippie, this, you know, wannabe rock star who moved to California, uh, didn't really know anyone and yet manages to convince uh, a handful of people to murder on his behalf under on his orders. And I think, you know, the, we've been trying to sort of look into that a little bit more deeply and as part of that and our coverage of this um, this anniversary today if you like that we actually managed to connect with a woman who used to be one of his followers Diane Lake was just 14 years old when she met Charles Manson at a party in California she um, her parents uh, were were drug users they had dropped out of society as they put it at the time and um, and they had granted her permission to move out of their house and kind of live on her own so you know it was important to kind of remember the context that this was sort of the 1960s uh, this growing counterculture um, and you know busloads of young people showing up in California looking for some guru to tell them you know the meaning of life basically and so you know Charles Manson was in the words of his biographer Jeff Gwynn the wrong man at the right place at the right time and he you know had previously actually been a pimp uh, for two or three years in the 1950s and and became kind of a master at manipulating people particularly young vulnerable women and and I think you know he managed to convince uh, a few of them to to kill on his behalf and that's what happened exactly 50 years ago today Jeff when you spoke with the the Manson biographer Were you able to delve into Charles' upbringing? I mean, what he eventually led people to do was disturbing, but his childhood was not exactly ordinary. No, it wasn't. And I mean, Charles Manson's childhood is, you know, is a story that's been told many times over the years, of course, but it's, uh, it was also interesting to kind of unpack some of the myths surrounding Manson's childhood, uh, some of which he himself helped to create. I mean, you can, you know, you, you can even just sort of Google Manson's childhood story and you'll, you'll find this narrative about how he, you know, his mother was a prostitute, uh, his, his father was MIA right from the beginning, that his mother actually tried to trade her son for 
offer a pitcher of beer because she was an alcoholic and that it was just sort of paints this picture of this horrific upbringing. Now, you know, it, it's true that his childhood was tough, that his father was not in the picture, uh, that his mother was a teenager, but actually um, it was a, you know, a cushier childhood than he allowed, he led people to believe. He was basically raised by an aunt and uncle. Uh, he had a doting grandmother, um, you know, but he, you know, in his teens was in and out of the criminal justice system all the time, in and out of jail all the time, mostly for petty crimes and, uh, you know, sometimes things more serious like armed robbery and auto theft. Um, so, it, you know, it is fair to say that he came from a broken home, but it's often overstated just how difficult it was. And I think he sort of used these myths around his childhood to turn himself into a legend in the eyes of his followers, um, that he was sort of this poster child for, you know, how broken the system was and the class divide and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting background and, uh, and it's incredible, even all these years later, how much myth there is in, in amongst the facts and when it comes to Charles Manson's biography. So, Jeff, then he sets up shop in California. How did he go about organizing, especially at that ranch, the, uh, the Manson family and, and sort of taking over that property that has even become further famous in the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yeah, that's, as you say, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, the fact that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has come out this summer, that is one of many new movies and books that have come come out to mark the anniversary that still speaks to this enduring, insatiable appetite for Manson content. And, you know, a lot of that content, as you note, speaks to how he managed to set up shop and how he managed to recruit these followers. And they were sort of this group of, of drug-using drifters that lived briefly at a couple of ranches. Uh, they they lived and slept in vehicles for a while. They would stay at different people's houses. So they never really set up permanent residence anywhere. And it was sort of this sort of free spirit movement that um, that he was preaching. And um, so they, you know, they constantly were kind of on the move. A lot of this was sort of motivated by Charles Manson trying to get his music career started, um, you know, trying to network. And he had a connection, a member of the Beach Boys for a brief period. And um, in fact, one of the people... Uh, who they lived with after they left the man the ranch was um, a friend of Manson's called uh, Gary Hinman and uh, Gary was also a musician he had a big house uh, Gary let them stay with him for a period and actually Gary Hinman would become their first victim he was killed in July 1969 uh, because Manson you know was trying to basically get his followers to rob Gary for money uh, and ended up resulting in his death and as we know the rest is history things sort of spiraled out of control from there Jeff Semple a senior correspondent for Global National News also wrote a fantastic web story on this at globalnews.ca. And Jeff, as I as I scroll through your article, the images that that strike me the most are Manson and his followers laughing and smiling moments after receiving death sentences for their part in the Tate killings. What what insight do you have on the atmosphere? Why is there laughter and smiling? Well, it was chaotic. I mean, if you, you know, you sort of read about the, the trial, um, you know, we talked to some people who covered it. Uh, I mean, it was an absolute circus, right? I mean, Manson was getting kicked out of his own trial. They were having out of the kicked out of the courtroom, of course. Um, and they were laughing, as you say, after they received the death sentence. I mean, this is sort of part of the, I think, what has made, again, made this story and this case have, have such a lasting impression in the American psyche is because um, Charles Manson just 
you know, convinced people that he was an absolute madman. Um, you know, when really, um, I think those who who have delved into his story very closely, including his biographers, say that he was very much a performer. That he was a master of getting the public's attention. That you know, everything he, he did was to sort of maximize his attention, and he was still sort of performing the, this sort of circus right until his death. I mean, he would regularly give interviews to journalists. In fact, a journalist named named James Buddy Day, a, a Canadian who's um, actually lives not far from you in Calgary, is was one of the last journalists. Uh, perhaps the last journalist to interview Charles Manson before he died. Uh, and Manson would still say provocative, crazy things um, just to kind of keep the spotlight on him. Uh, and it's worth noting, though, that some of those uh, Manson followers who you see in those pictures laughing after they received the death penalty, um, needless to say, they're not laughing anymore. Um, all of those who received the death penalty actually had their death penalty then commuted over to life in prison because California changed the law and abolished the death penalty right around that time. So they have spent their lives in prison. Um, there are, to this day, five Manson family members who are still alive, who were involved in the murders, who remain in prison today, and uh, in almost every case, they have um, been recommended for parole numerous times. Uh, they've, you know, some of them, one of them is a minister, the other does charitable work within the prison. Um, so, you know, they have these glowing reviews from their parole officers, they've been, or from the prison officers, excuse me, they've been recommended for parole on numerous occasions, but each time, the governor of California has overruled their decision and insisted that they remain incarcerated. And talking to some of the family's victims, some of the victims of uh, Charles Manson, their family members we've been speaking to to mark the anniversary, they say, you know, these anniversaries are kind of a mixed blessing because on one hand, it's awful to have to relive the anguish and relive the horror of what happened 50 years ago. But on the other hand, it keeps the public pressure and the public interest on this case and uh, and means that it's that much more likely that Manson's followers, like their former leader, will probably die in prison. Jeff, you've mentioned the five that are still in jail and before you had also brought up the name Diane Lake. What's she up to these days? Yeah, so Diane Lake, it's worth noting, was one of Manson's followers, but she did not take part in the murder uh, or any of the murders. Uh, and part of that was just luck on her on her part because uh, she was, you know, a real integral member of that group of the Manson family. But that she had a falling out with Manson um, not long before the murders happened. She was she had disobeyed him. She was Manson got very upset with her, and she was for a time ostracized from the group. And you know, she quite openly thanks God for that. Says that. that that was, you know, a, a life-saving blessing for her that um, she feels God protected her from, from the group because had she stayed, who knows what would have happened. She then went on to testify against Charles Manson at trial. Uh, and then for decades, um, because she was so young at the time, her, her decade, for decades, she sort of kept her story a secret uh, from, you know, people closest to her, including her partner, uh, her children who were, you know, teenagers growing up, not, not realizing that their mother had been a member of the Manson family. But then about, I think, 10, 15 years ago, uh, police came knocking because they were looking at, a, at an unsolved murder case and were thinking it might be connected to Manson, came knocking on her door um, looking for her assistance with that. It, with that investigation, at, at that point, she had to come out and admit to her own family and to the world that she, you know, was once a member of the Manson family. She's now retired. She's a grandmother, um, and you know, she's speaking openly about her story and has actually published her memoirs. Uh, and she provides, of course, a rare insight into 
to, you know, what it was like to live as a member of the quote-unquote Manson family. And she'll, that will have her, you can hear her in her own words uh, tonight, I think, on uh, the on television news at Global Edmonton and on Global National. And Jeff, as we wrap, any any indication if we will ever, as a society, get tired of the, of the Manson tale? I mean, we talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming out. Tons of people are going to see it. Do you, do you see an end to, to this in sight, an appetite for it? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because I've been asking that question to everybody we've been interviewing as a part of this coverage. Um, and, you know, it is hard to see an end in sight. I mean, you know, if you Google, you know, Charles Manson T-shirts, you'll still see them, you know, come up on Amazon. You'll still see kids wearing them in schools. Um, and I think, you know, it's incredible that it's lasted this long. The fact that Charles Manson died in prison a couple of years ago, you know, makes you think that perhaps we might soon be seeing the end of this, or at least the end of this sort of level of insatiable interest in this case. Um, but it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, the fact that these, you know, there are still five surviving members of the Manson family, they constantly keep applying for parole, that keeps the story in the news, uh, all these anniversaries, of course. So, I mean, I think... We probably got at least another generation before this story, uh, you know, stops making money. There are so many books and movies that have come out to mark this anniversary that, you know, it's hard to imagine that we won't see something similar 10 years from now to mark the 60th. Jeff Semple, senior correspondent for Global National News. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us about this fascinating and terrifying file. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Morgan. We just got off the phone with Jeff Semple, senior correspondent for Global National News, and we were talking... Charles Manson, and it's a name that means a lot of things to a lot of people. 50 years ago, he convinced his followers to kill, which is something that I still can't even wrap my mind around. He died in prison in 2017, but with the 50th anniversary and Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's, it's, we don't run out of, of Manson material. It's always on our mind. So Brad and I want to pose the question to you, 630-630 is our text line. If you were around when all of the Manson events were happening, what what do you remember from that time? Were you were you fascinated? Were you were you scared? Did you just not want to hear anything more about Charles Manson? I find I find that it's for me difficult to talk about because it's like you you don't necessarily want to give him the the spotlight, quote unquote, because I'm sure that's exactly what what he would want. But it is fascinating in a, in a morbid way to to think that he had this kind of power over his group, the Manson family, as they're called. Yeah, I don't think you'd see anything like it today, because back then you just didn't you just didn't think the same. You didn't act the same. It's it's like any other era. It's just different times. I um, I, I can't foresee a, a cult like atmosphere like this being established in 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 2020 or 2019 2020 um but it, it, jeff uh, made an interesting point um regardless how heinous and how ugly and how disturbing charles manson was as a person and how disturbing the the manson cult and manson family was there's still kids going to school this year wearing charles manson shirts uh, people still have an appetite to watch Charles Manson documentaries. They have an appetite to read Charles Manson biographies. Uh, it's just, these are the type of things where you always, you want to know more. You want to know as much as you can because it was such a disturbing time, such a, a troubling thing to happen. And Jeff talks about Diane Lake, who was one of the first and youngest members of the Manson family. She was 14, getting 
way in over her head. Not that it was her fault, of course, because she was a child, but I, it's amazing that she was able to, to come out of everything. I think that's what's more impressive. Okay. Is that she was able to come out of it and realize what she was getting involved in was not the right path to go down as a 14-year-old, but that's who Charles Manson preyed on, right? Was 13, 14, right. 15, 16-year-olds, uh, drifters. Um, they felt like he was providing a, a safe place. Um, that ranch that he had taken over in California, uh, just the way Quentin Tarantino went about it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, I think that was one of the more accurate moments of the movie in just how much control he had over people and how committed these women were to him. We we interviewed Diane as, as part of Jeff Semple's coverage, and, and she says he was just like a guitar-playing hippie. That was her perspective of him when, when she was 14. And, and it makes sense that he preyed upon these vulnerable people, making them think, oh, it's he's, he's fun, he's young, he's youthful, he's doing something different, something that's not traditional. And then you find out that he's plotting murders and something completely unexpected. I, she, she's, she's gone on to, to write a memoir, which she published in 2017, describing her time in the cult. She, she says he, Manson, just descended into madness. Kimberly Dawn uh, from Edmonton was affected by the Manson murders. She's here to share her perspective. Hi, Kimberly. How are you? Hi. You know, it's hard to explain the type of hysteria that human beings experience when they hear something like this in a time period when that could not happen. I was 10 years old. The, the concept of it alone was unbelievable. We thought people from California were absolutely insane, that, that this could be not allowed, don't misunderstand, but that it could manifest. We also wanted to be in a position where we made sure that could never happen again. Well, I'm reading Bugliosi's book in regards to the Manson situations. We're on the highway. We're going on a holiday. And we find out that Squeaky Fromm and Tex are on the road and they're on the same highway and there's all these hysterical reports on the radio, the TV, etc. that we have to not approach, be careful, blah, blah, blah. That in itself was like a traumatic experience. Then we've got a musician friend who happens to be one of the finest saxophonists in Western Canada, who unfortunately looks like Charles Manson, has ruined his life in that respect. It is a horrifying situation to walk down the street and people stop, stare, and want to take pictures of you because you look like an insane, horrible person. Kimberly, can you give me an idea? You were 10 years old at the time. What yep. was it like on your parents' end and trying to... That's what keep, I'm saying. ...trying to keep you away from that information? They didn't try to keep me away. Okay. I, I, I worked on my first homicide case when I was five years old. I'm one of Canada's top five psychics, and that's my specialty, homicide and missing people. So for me, no, I wasn't kept away from it. I was asked questions about it. It was awful. <laughs> but you have to be in a position, too, where you look at your neighbors. You don't trust your neighbors. My parents did not want us, and, and the rules that we had for playing outside after this were unbelievable. Like, children weren't allowed to do this, do that. And I mean, listen, I, I worked on missing children. I, you, you have to teach children these things. But the hysteria 
regarding it. Children were afraid. Like, this is something that was in the adult world. But the children were being... I don't know. I, I don't even know how to explain that. It is Emo- difficult. Not emotionally brutalized, but seriously emotionally traumatizing. Kimberly Dawn from Edmonton, thank you so much for sharing that Have story. A great day. You Thanks. as well. 10 years old and just that is that is a lot to take in at the age of 10.